Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, no, that is not true. I, I'm not sure if I can swear on your show. You can. <laughs> I fucking love Fiasco. That's great. I, I will play it anytime with anyone. That no my, kidding. My ardor for the game is not diminished. Um, I think because it's a, it's really a, a showcase for the participants, uh, and so I, I really enjoy people. I enjoy seeing creative genius in all its forms, and a group of people that are really engaged in that game are going to support each other and uh, create something really fun together, no matter what. Faithful listeners have heard Jason Morningstar brought up in several interviews with other designers. If you listen to my interview with Shannon Applecline, he specifically noted Jason's huge impact on modern game design. Now, I expected to learn from interviewing him, but was delighted to discover that he's also a kind and generous person with copious and contagious enthusiasm. We talk about how he approaches many of his famous and possibly lesser known games. We discover he isn't tired of fiasco yet. Be sure to stick around towards the end when he teaches me what LARPing really is and dispels many of my misconceptions. At the end of April, his company is crowdfunding two new games, Dead House and The Isabel, on GameFound using their new desperation system. The tag on the website calls these games two games of survival horror, often without the survival. So you know I'm all in. Desperation provides unique card-driven gameplay for gothic storytelling experiences steeped in actual history. Deadhouse and the Isabel are dark, lyrical games about people pushed far past their limits. If you like card-based role-playing games like For the Queen and The Quiet Year, but have a dark and unmerciful heart, you'll love Desperation. Scroll down and check out the link below. A quick thank you to a few of our newest patrons. Naomi Dempsey, B-Match, Masukomi, Fabian Piekert, and Peter Thomas. Because of you and the other floorheads on Patreon, I continue to provide gaming content on a weekly basis. All right, friends, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Jason. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads, to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to the author designer and founder of Bully Pulpit Games, Jason Morningstar. Now, many of you know him as the creator of the game Fiasco. He has also created for tons of other games and publishers, including Steve Jackson Games and Pelgrim Press. You've heard his name several times as I've talked to other designers, and he is a two-time Diana Jones Award winner. So, Jason, welcome to the third floor. Thank you, Craig. It's good to be here. 
So you got to go through the standard question that everybody gets, which is at one point you knew nothing about tabletop gaming and role playing and throwing dice and pretending to be other people. And then one day it was ex you were exposed to it for the first time. Can you take me back there? Yeah, I guess I would uh, I would argue that that's not really my trajectory. Oh, OK. Uh, my uh, my dad was a gamer. So he was really into war games and uh, miniatures war games when I was a kid. And uh, at that time, that meant SPI games, yeah. um, everything back to like Tactics 2, um, nice. Campaign for North Africa, like the whole thing. He was really into it. All and the so, chits and everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Borodino, uh, Panzer wow. Leader, those kinds of games. And so I grew up uh, watching him and my uncle play these games. Uh, which you know was uh, was both validating and really exciting for for a young child to see uh, that these were grown ups who were very engaged with play in a way that was at that time still a little alien to me. But of course, you know, my dad was the coolest guy in the world, and I wanted to emulate that. And so, gaming was always normalized in my household. That's great. Uh, so. Uh, when my uncle uh, came over one one day with a copy of White Box D and D, and said, "Hey, I, I just picked this up at the at the hobby store at the Alcove Hobby Shop on Woodward in Ferndale, Michigan," uh, uh, and and I have no idea what to do with it. This doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> uh, he uh, he put it down, and my brother and I picked it up, and we're like, "We we know what to do with this. We we got it. We'll and take." How it from did you here. know that? Well, when he described it, he said, well, you know, this, it's this game where you, you know, you, you play a single person rather than a <laughs> unit and uh, the combat rules are a little iffy and there's weird magic. And th th just we were like, OK, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. Just <laughs> give it to us. We'll make it work. And that we were off to the races. It felt very, very natural. Uh, really? For us. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I remember as a kid struggling, because uh, we're of similar similar age, right? So uh, for those younger kids listening, uh, there's no internet, there's no Twitch streams, <laughs> right? So you you know we get uh, we get our white box put in front of us, and you just kind of have to fudge through it and figure it out. Um, how hard of a process do you remember? If that was just super easy, or did you guys just fake it till you make it, or did you never play it the way it was written? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a perplex. That particular product is so perplexing. It's really hermetic, and and yeah. uh, everyone's going to play it their own way, of course, just because there's not a lot of there there right. in original D and D, which is part of what's beautiful about it. And that's not definitely not a criticism. Um, so so my my brother is four years older than me, so he really took the lead uh, on sort of figuring out how it worked and. I was just rocking out as, as a wizard doing my thing. Uh, and he was my first DM and uh, it was a great time. And of course we, we moved on to advanced dungeons and dragons as soon as we possibly could. And then other games uh, uh, that were more, even more influential than D and D for us. So when you look back on that, Jason, what do you think was kind of the first next big game for you? So outside of D and D, was there a game that you remember growing up that just like kind of knocked your socks off or occupied your your headspace? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, we played D&D &D until we got our hands on Traveler. Oh, and, wow. And uh, GDW's original Traveler, Mark Miller's Traveler, just destroyed us. We were, <laughs> we were all in. And honestly, uh, Traveler 
taught me a lot. Like I learned a lot because I was highly motivated to, to, you know, do the things I wanted to do in that game in a way that I just wasn't being challenged in real life. So I was a, this is a common story for young nerds, but I was not a good student. I was just not motivated. I wasn't interested. It just didn't work for me, the traditional educational model. And so my teachers were like, well, he's obviously really smart, but he's failing. And, you know, like I remember uh, uh, there was a time when my mother was having one of these parent teacher meetings and she, she, she said, Jason, I, I got to go talk to your teachers. Can you just show me some of the stuff that you're you're learning in these games. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all about, you know, uh, gravitational lensing and applied kinematics and traveler. I'm learning what mortgages are, mom. I'm playing the <laughs> stock market in traveler. Right. And uh, I financed my ship, mom. <laughs> exactly. Like I got a 40 year mortgage to pay off. This is no joke. And uh, so like, that was, that was her way of like demonstrating to these teachers who just weren't really committed to my success. Yeah that you know i could do the work if properly motivated and and engaged and that was really great but yeah like those uh i I, that that game taught me a lot uh as did some others in in other maybe worse ways but uh (laughs) um for sure uh the the progression for me was uh D &D of, of whatever flavor then uh traveler and then i started to get hooked into the local gaming scene which is really exciting because there were people that were uh, designing games in the Metro Detroit area where I grew up. And I, uh, at a very young age, I was still like in middle school, I plugged into these people who were, they were college kids basically at the time that were developing games like the Morrow Project and um, Stalking the Night Fantastic, Bureau 13, which are really interesting, fun, cool games that really no middle school kids should be playing. Um, <laughs> but uh I, that that was my first uh, introduction, really, to like the scrappy end of game design, which was exciting too. Well, I would imagine too at an early age, it shows you that that's doable, right? That people yeah. make games, which yep. you know sounds silly, but as I talk to more people, Jason, that's one of the things I hear. Is I hear like, oh, then I learned you could make your own games, and that's a huge revelation. You had that at a very young age. Well, I did. Yeah, I really did, and I'm grateful for it. Did you? I mean. What was it like for you as a kid f- working with unfinished games and playtesting these things as they were going? Was that like, just like, hey, it's just another game for me? Did it even register you what was happening? Yeah, and like I, uh, I was aware of the process. The, the people, at, this was um, Richard Taholka and Tritac was the company that was doing all this stuff. Um, and, uh, and Timeline Incorporated was doing uh, the Morrow Project. So it was the same sort of crew of, of nerds that were, 10 years older than me probably at the time. And uh, it was it was very clear that they were making something and that they were refining it over time and that the rules changed. And I got to see that process uh, and participate in it in some way, uh, but not in a critical way. Like I was just there to play always. Right. You know, I was there to have a good time and to have some crazy adventure and to usually shoot some things and, you know, uh, do the things that a 12 year old or 13 year old wants to do playing a role-playing game. So, so I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking my kid through the uh, Jason Morningstar museum and we go to the first exhibit and it's D and D we go to the second exhibit and we see, you know, you working with indie games before indie games existed. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. What's the next big uh, exhibit I'm going to look at. So in your mind growing up and, and, and developing, what do you think was the next biggie? Uh, happy to answer that. But before I do, I just want to point out that indie games have always existed. It's right. not like it's something that, that, I mean, as soon as people got their hands on original D and D, they started hacking it. 
and so like it's always been there yeah it's great point. part of the landscape so for me uh uh D, D then traveler then these these sort of regional uh homebrew kinds of games uh that turned into bureau 13 which is reasonably well known and the moral project reasonably well known early 80s games um Real excited about that stuff. And then I kind of got uh, turned on to GURPS when GURPS became a thing. I was an early adopter of GURPS. And that's what led to my decline and ruin because GURPS <laughs> is totally modular by design, right? Like it doesn't presuppose a setting. It gives you this tool, this toolbox, right? And so suddenly I had this really cool set of tools that emerged from the fantasy trip. Uh, which, which you know, Melee and Wizard, which are, you know, beautiful tactical board games with this sort of fictional gloss that became uh, In the Labyrinth, which is amazing. And we played the hell out of that, which became uh, GURPS, right? You can you can see the DNA all through Steve Jackson's... Uh, I hope this isn't too inside baseball. Like, no, it's not. It's just, right. Steve's been on the show, so no, by oh, no means. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, hugely influential, and to see that progression was also enormously uh, informative as a as a proto designer too, right? Because you could see the DNA from the fantasy trip in GURPS, right? Yeah, you had to and, change and it, you, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, could you, you? So it's one thing for Jason now to look back at that, right? And see the, see the through line between those games leading to GURPS. Did you have a sense of that as you were playing it at the time or are you oh, just, yeah, no, just no rocking question. it? No, absolutely no question. Uh, at that time, I was thinking critically about it and could see the choices that he'd made, how he had changed it, the things that didn't quite work in the fantasy trip as a sort of uh, role-playing game, uh, that absolutely he hit all those marks in, uh, in GURPS. And I was like, okay, you know, lesson learned. So there's a lot of people listening, Jason, um, and I'm listening to you. You know, I played games, I hacked games, and, you know, my version of white D&D &D is nothing like the one you played. And, uh, oh, I fell in love with GURPS like like you did. Um, not for exactly the same reasons, but, you know, there's some, there's some overlap there, right? Um, what I never did is create a game um, or desire to do more than create a game at my table um, when did that bug first hit you where you said, I'm, I want to do a little bit more? That's a good question. And, um, for me, I think it was a pretty natural evolution. So I started out, um, I talked about my gradual descent to ruin, right? So I started out with <laughs> GURPS kind of as written, uh, using, uh, rules to model reality, which I think GURPS is really trying hard to do, uh, which is an interesting choice looking back <laughs> on it. Um, I, I was very interested in realism for a long time, and now I don't. I'm not, but at the time I, I was. Um, but but over time, as my tastes and um, interests changed, that became less important. And what became more important was ease of play and uh, the speed at which we could get into whatever the theme or concept that we were trying to explore was. And so I paired GURPS away, right? Like my version of GURPS became really close to bare metal, right? Which GURPS accommodates very well. Like you can you can take stuff out just as easily as you can bricolage stuff onto it. And so there was a point at which I wanted less than GURPS would provide. Like I wanted I wanted it to do less than the minimum amount it would allow me to do. And and you know casting about that led me to um fudge, right? 
which is even simpler and sim similarly modular. So we played fudge for a while and the same kinds of uh, pressures built where I started to hack fudge to be simpler in, in different ways. And then it became a point where I was making my own games, right? Uh, and those games were meeting my needs and the needs of my friends around my table, um, but they became progressively further afield from what we had been doing previously. And at that point, uh, I was into it. You know, I I was excited about making games for my friends, and uh, uh, started participating in contests. Uh, participated in Game Chef, and um, one of my Game Chef games. Uh, some people that I really respected and admired, who didn't know me, and I didn't know them, uh, coming out of Game Chef, they said uh, very matter of factly. We liked this game. We played it at Gen Con. It was very fun. When are you publishing it? Ooh. Right? And, yeah. uh, and the answer was, I, I guess, as soon as I can. I, I don't know. Um, so so that's really sort of the, the evolution of my, my ascent into designhood, I guess. And I would, if it's okay, I just want to add that I think everybody who hacks a game Everybody who's writing adventures for a game is a game designer, and I, oh, I, I, I don't want to put that that term or my own community of practice on a pedestal. I think that's a little toxic, and I don't want to come off as somebody who thinks it's a rarefied profession. I think we're all doing that all the time if we really are engaging with the hobby. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful point, Jason. A wonderful point, and it's a point that I enjoy hearing uh, people say on the show because. Um, I'm a victim. I, I'm, I fall into that trap, right? Thinking that, um, you know, you have to be some sort of special chosen child in order to publish a game. But, you know, especially in this day and age, yeah. you know, the bound, the, the boundaries are gone, right? You no, know, the, yeah, the, this is a golden age for that. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing to me uh, how uh, easy it is to share your work, which, you know, has been a barrier. There's been barriers to entry for a long time and most of them are, are gone. It's a, that doesn't mean there aren't problems. And, and it doesn't mean that sharing your work means that it becomes a viable um, avenue toward recognition or success, but. Sure. Sure. Um, but the traditional model is gone in, a, in, right. in, in many ways, which I think is important. So guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about Jason's kind of next step where we see him starting to create material for other people's games, including GURPS, and then we'll move on from there. So we'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. 
We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So you find out people are playing this game that you put together for Game Chef and they say, you know, wow, this is this is when you're putting it out. Um, what was it next after that, Jason? Where, where did you did you put the game out? We did. Yeah, that was uh, the first game I published. It was called the Shab Elhiri Roach. You've got to tell people about this game because yeah, it's amazing. You know, so so this was it was 2006. I was in graduate school um, and that year the Game Chef ingredients uh, were entomology, accuser, wine, and something else. Uh, so I, I was really in, a, in an academic mode at that point, And I started thinking entomology, so insects and bugs, accusers, some kind of paranoid situation, wine. Well, of course, like faculty meetings and, you know, um, highfalutin academic uh, life. And out of those things came this sort of... Uh, this game that really sort of was reflecting my lived experience at that point, which is the Shab Elhiri Roach. And the premise of the game is that um, you're in a sort of Tweedy New England college campus and somebody has brought a uh, telepathic mind controlling uh, uh, ancient Sumerian insect that can climb into your sinus cavities and take over your brain, uh, which is it's amazing, uh, which is a uh, it's a good metaphor for graduate school, I think. Uh, and so uh, the if you're infested with this this alien insect, it's it's asking you to do things that made sense in the context of being an ancient Sumerian god king, but that don't make sense in the context of a, a 20th century uh, college campus. So half of the game is dealing with that stuff, which is sort of over the top, crazy, very silly. And the other half is just dealing with regular academia, like political infighting uh, on campus. And they, ha they have equal weight uh, and equal <laughs> importance within the narrative. Uh, and so it's like a vaguely competitive game. It's very silly. It's super dark. Uh, and uh, it was very well received. Uh, people, people liked it. Um, and uh, it's still available, but it's, uh, uh, that was my first, my first game. And it came once, uh, once the, I, the even the idea to publish it uh, came, uh, we started the company. Uh, my friend Steve Segetti and I uh, started the company, Bully Pulpit Games, and uh, we were off to the races. Races at that point. That's amazing. Um, now, was that um, that's a GMless game, correct? Yeah, it is. That's even so. At that point, I was really interested in uh, how you apportion authority around the table and was influenced by games that were starting to do that in really interesting ways, games like Polaris uh, that, uh, that were doing it. And so for me, it was very natural. I was like, well, that's, that's what I'm interested in. That's the space I like to play in. So that's a good place to, uh, to, to set the sort of mechanical scaffolding for this game. So Jason, as I've been talking to designers and we talk about GMless games, and I've had some designers on that have produced uh, GMless games, they seem to drive back to you 
right? Um, and but it sounds to me like you you drive back much farther than you. Um, that you weren't the first person to hate a GM and get rid of the GM. Um, so I'm not familiar with Polaris. So how did Polaris? When you look at that as an influence on that concept, what did Polaris do that made you realize that maybe we could spread that around? Sure. Well, first of all, I love GMs. Uh, I want everybody to be a GM. I think uh, five heads around the table are going to come up with better things than one. So it's the opposite. I do not hate GMs. I'm kidding. I don't. And, uh, and there are plenty of places where that's the perfect arrangement. So anyway, I gotta, I gotta just. That's a, that's often uh, levied as an accusation at me, and I need to just disabuse you of the notion. I mean, I wasn't the first one to make that joke, Jason. Is that what you're saying? No, you were definitely not the first one. <laughs> Um, and Polaris is a great game that also came out of Game Chef uh, and that uh, doesn't have a GM, but has a very formalized structure where uh, you're interacting with the person across from you at a table with four players. Uh, and everybody's got um, sort of ritualized roles within the, the fiction uh, that they're uh, responsible for. So it, it, in, in my mind, uh, Polaris was a, a game that took the functions of a GM and distributed them uh, asymmetrically around the table to create a, a composite single GM, basically. Uh, and then, so you get to be a player and the other three uh, players get to be a composite GM whose whose responsibilities rotate. But it's pretty pretty fixed and pretty rigid. Um, and I, I was always of the opinion that um, symmetry might be a better way to do it. So gotcha. So to, uh, asymmetrical, spread it out even. Mm hmm Interesting. Having everyone uh, have the uh, equal amount of authority and right. credibility right. at any any time. So when do you start uh, producing for other people? Um, so when do you you put out uh, what was it historical folks for for GURPS um, and then I, well, I contributed to that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Trail of Cthulhu. You put some put some work out for. So how does that come together? Uh, well, so um, you know. I, I, uh, I have a network of friends and different people in the in the business, and I'm excited about what they're doing, or I'm excited about a, a project that I have that doesn't fit within the the, uh, the bounds of my company, and just I'll, you know, either offer uh, or volunteer or suggest, depending on the circumstances. So, like with Pelgrain, they. Uh, they just had a standing offer because I'm friends with Simon and, and all those people. Uh, and they said, if you want to do something for us for trail of Cthulhu, we know you like that, that stuff. And it's clearly not something your company's going to do. Then, you know, we're happy to, to, uh, see what you got. Uh, and I, you know, and I do, I, I played a lot of call of Cthulhu. I like that sort of, uh, you know, uh, cyclopean mind destroying horror, uh, genre stuff uh and want and really enjoy putting my own spin on it because i love history and and uh, finding really cool historical uh touchstones for things uh is very satisfying so like that just kind of worked out in other cases it was uh i was approached by people to do work for them um i guess based on you know what i had already done so yeah i was prior to this i, I looked back on uh sort of the list of people i've worked with and it's pretty it's a lot i was surprised i'd forgotten how many different companies i've worked with is there as you look at that list right now jason is there ones that stand out that you think had a, had a real impact on your process not necessarily as a mentor by any stretch of imagination but when you look at that list of uh you know partnerships that you did and you go you know yeah this 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 changed me oh yeah that's or a great question 
Um, that is hard to say. I think that probably the things that were most productive for me in terms of my own development as a game designer are things that I did in collaboration. So uh, like I worked with uh, Rachel E.S. Walton on uh, Fall of Magic for Heart of the Dunicorn. Um, we, we, we developed the underworld for uh, Fall of Magic, which is really fun. And working with Rachel was just a pleasure. It was super interesting. Um, uh, working with Alex Roberts, uh, Randy Lubin, uh, my good friend Lizzie Stark, who I'm sort of in a design partnership with, uh, Jessica Crean. These are all people that I've I've done stuff with, and working in really close collaboration with another person is, I think, the most informative and most uh, productive way to grow as a designer. So, when you're in those partnerships, Jason, at, um, do you find yourself playing a role? Uh, is there, uh, is it some of that apportioned to Jason and then some of it apportioned not, or does that rotate or is it spread evenly? Um, like when you're, when you're collaborating like that, what, what role do you play? Yeah. Um, I think it, it varies with the partner and, um, it's important in that sort of a collaboration that both partners either have a clear understanding that it's sort of 50, 50 and that we're each going to be doing the same amount and the same kind of work or that you recognize each other's strengths. And this is a much better model. Um, and then uh, leaning on those strengths. So uh, in my partnership with Lizzie Stark, for example, I'm the layout guy. I'm gonna lay out all the products. I'm gonna do the visual design uh, because that's just something I'm good at. And that's not an area that Lizzie cares to get involved in. Um, and she has other uh, things that she brings to the table that are not that. Uh, and we just know that as a team. So often, um, like in our most recent collaboration, there was a point where we said, okay, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm going to lay this out. You do the research related to the music that we need to incorporate into this product. And then that's where she went and spent her energy while I uh, did the visual design. And then we regrouped. So something that, um, that I've heard um, is that uh, you also enjoy LARPing and, and, and creating four LARPs. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> okay where did that where did that come from because because that's a slightly different animal it is it's a very different animal and uh a designing for larp is very different and really challenging in a whole different way uh yeah i, I just love it and i think it's uh part of it is that like i, I think over over my career i see things getting simpler and simpler mechanically mm -hmm. maybe uh maybe a little more elegant a little more subtle uh, and with LARP, you just can't, you can't have any extraneous complication. Everything has to be very clear, very elegant in play, very bomb proof, uh, as much as you can make it. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And then the sort of the kinesthetics of LARP are just a pleasure to me. Um, I come from a background of performance, so I love acting and chewing the scenery and, waving my hands around and designing for that. Uh, I could, I'll, I'll go nuts about LARP if you want me to. Well, let's do it. Okay. So uh, it, it's exciting to me because I think it gets to the core of why we play these kind of games quicker. Uh, that the, the peak experiences that you have in tabletop play uh, will come and they come uh, with a significant investment usually. You don't usually sit down for a couple of hours and walk away saying, that was profound. Uh, I was moved by that, and uh, I've you know experienced something new. 
Uh, whereas with LARP, that can happen in two hours all the time. Uh, and I love that and I want to see that more. And I, I try to bring bring that back into tabletop design as much as I can um, with varying amounts of success since it really is a, <laughs> a different medium. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, that's, I think it's true um, and I've seen it. Uh, and also LARP, uh, it, it allows a much easier um, uh, sense of empathy, I think. Like you, for, for me, you can really uh, embody a character in a more holistic way in LARP, whereas tabletop gives you boundaries. Uh, and those boundaries are both convenient and sometimes necessary. Uh, and there's nothing unhealthy about them, but it's very different. Uh, when, when I, you know, when I say, uh, and uh, your father says he's disappointed in you, Craig, that's very different from I'm your dad and I'm disappointed in you. You know, uh, it's there's there's uh, there's less alibi. There's less aesthetic distance between those two, um, and it can be uh, much more intense. If your audience is all tabletop players, they should be trying LARP because it's absolutely amazing. Well, I'm headed in that direction because I was thinking the same thing. So that's that's a hobby. That's part of the hobby I've never participated in. Um, and and I, I, I it's a little funny to me because, you know, I think about being a role player and what now that granted this has changed a lot recently but there was always this perception of what role playing was and then the reality of what role playing is right um and i still feel in a lot of ways we're still in the perception phase with larping though that that's gotten that's changed as well um so for someone listening who only all they know is you know the guy in the the paper hat throwing sand uh mm -hmm. saying I'm, sure. I'm, you know fireball fireball yeah, yeah. what's the reality of larping that people have yet to really experience if they haven't yeah, no, that, thank you for asking, Craig. So first of all, the fireball, fireball, paper hat guy, that's fun as hell. And, <laughs> and there is nothing wrong with that. Right. Uh, you, you almost certainly have a local group that is doing that. And uh, I'm all in. That is very fun. Uh, you, you can absolutely play silly fantasy games in the woods on the weekend. And it's a great time. Uh, it's not my, my focus as a designer or a player. Uh, but it's definitely a, a good way to to engage with and make really good friends. Uh, what I'm interested in is uh, short experiences uh, that take maybe a couple hours to to play, uh, maybe four to eight players. So, so games that you could play in an afternoon or an evening uh, that maybe deal with uh, more serious themes. Uh, so. Or, or things that are like that have a, a broader tonal spectrum that aren't necessarily fantasy games. Um, so uh, games, uh, I've got a, a surreal game that takes place on the sky deck of the world's tallest building where you, you're, you're trapped there and time passes and things get really weird like a, a Louis Buñuel movie. Um, nice. I, I've got a game that's about a, a small town election in America. <laughs> So it's it's about the fifth seat on the board of aldermen in, in a in just a rural community, uh, which of course is going to be you know like super intense. You know? Right. The people who want that seat really want it, even though only eighteen people are going to vote. Uh, and uh, that game is uh, paced around uh, the local public radio station's interviews. So oh, you play cool. it with a soundtrack where the local uh, DJ is asking you questions that's part of the soundtrack and the candidates get to answer and then it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, so like a wide range, there's a huge 
stylistic range and tonal and thematic range for games uh, that are that can be super fun. And that's yeah. just like one slice of the pie, right? So we talked about silly paper hat people. Um, we talked about uh, my you know two hours. Let's make each other cry games, uh, <laughs> uh, or or you know fall down laughing games. Um, but there's also people who are super into vampire LARPs, and that's a very well-established genre uh, that ties in with the tabletop game Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, there are people who are doing blockbuster LARPs, uh, which is not right now, uh, of course, but in the before times, uh, where you'd get together for a weekend and have super high production value, uh, really uh, intense, amazingly costumed weekend events, which are astonishing and great. Um and then there's, you know, there are other styles as well all over the world. Uh, so, yeah, if you have preconceptions about it that are based on uh, per, per, uh, depictions in the media, they're probably wrong. Yeah, probably wrong. yeah. So this might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Jason. Um, where where does the line get blurry when we start to define this out? So if I say this game is a tabletop game and this game is a LARP, where's the border? And you are asking such good questions. <laughs> that's that is that is super great. And uh, the answer, I think, is very subjective, super subjective. So there's a um, there's a really well regarded event in Denmark called Festival, and at Festival they have um, they they it's a game convention. They they uh, they invite submissions, and then if your game is accepted at Festival, they arrange uh, game masters and facilitators to run your game five or 10 times wow. at the event. And then there's a panel of judges, all of whom will have played. And then there's also uh, uh, feedback from the people who've played. So like if it's a 10 person game, a hundred people have played your game and they're That's all amazing. giving giving feedback on it. And at Festival, uh, a scenario at Festival is, we would call it a LARP, but they call it a tabletop right it's it is exactly in that gray area they're typically very highly structured but you might get up and move around uh, mm. you're gonna you know uh interact in a more physical kinesthetic way maybe uh but there's going to be uh some really set things that we would recognize from tabletop role playing as well uh and so like it's it's really fun to talk to europeans for for whom the definition is right. the blur is is a little in a different place yeah um, so, uh, I, I, and I play with that too in my tabletop games. So the idea of uh, using time as an element is something that you see in LARP a lot. And in my game, The Skeletons, uh, I ask you to just sit there and think in the darkness for a minute or 30 seconds or a couple of minutes, which is a very LARPy kind of kind of thing to, to ask you to do. Uh, and I totally learned that from, from LARP. Uh, I've got another game called Carolina Death Crawl, and in Carolina Death Crawl, when you're, uh, when you're I love the names of your games. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, in that game, when you're eliminated, it's a it's an it's a funnel, it's an elimination game. Only one character will survive. Okay. Uh, and so, as soon as your character perishes in some horrible way, you become a swamp ghost, and uh, <laughs> and you uh, you no longer have a seat at the table. So it's a tabletop game until your character dies, and then you have to get up and just whisper horrible things in people's ears. That's your job for the rest of the game is to is to be uh, it, the embodiment of their fears and their anxieties, um, and it works really great. 
Do you uh, think the is the physicality part of that transition from one to the other? Do you think, I, Jason? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think so. I, I think that once you get up and start moving, um, then you're definitely at least approaching live action play, um, and uh, usually that's a sign. There are plenty of uh, LARPs that are essentially committee games where you're sitting around a table deciding an important thing. That's actually a a very standard format, and that's pretty much a tabletop game. You know, there are rules. You're sitting around a table. You're playing a character. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are definitely interesting blurry lines. And I would say that if you're feeling like, eh, I don't know if I want to really try that, there are games that are very close to uh, to tabletop but still let you experience uh, the fun things about LARP. Um, I wrote a game called The Climb specifically for that. It's a gateway game that's designed to, to get you into... Uh, a, sort of a LARP headspace without really going too deep. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the climb, is there, is there any non Jason uh, gateway games we can recommend people? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the place to look uh, my suggestion is uh, there's uh, a, a yearly competition called the golden Cobra competition, which is specifically designed to produce short form LARPs and the games that win the golden Cobras uh, often meet those, those criteria. They're, often very small, very beautiful games that uh, that do not have a very demanding premise, but that will, will uh, expose you to LARP in a really fun way and uh, that are really cool and interesting to play. You're a good salesman, Jason. I like it. That's yeah, cool. I, That's Craig, cool. I want you to get out and try some of these games. You're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. I got to be honest with you, man. I've never had an interest in it, but um, you know, a lot of that is not full. It's like it's so many things, right? You just don't understand it. Now mm -hmm. that I have a, I think a much clearer understanding of what falls under that umbrella, um, it makes it far more approachable. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, twice, twice a year, I um, have a group of guys who go down to Jordan Lake, where you know where that is. I do, and I we go exactly camping. Where you go. Yeah. yeah, it's ca camping for gamers. I do it twice, twice a year. And um, it's about 20, the pool of people is about 20 guys. And, you know, get anywhere from eight to 15 of them show up for any, each individual trip. And all we do is play games like we play board games and card games during the day. And then at night we, you know, run RPGs. Um, that seems like a potential easy scenario to try try to flex something like that out. 100 so percent. Yeah. If, uh, uh, if I get in touch beforehand and we'll i will curate the best perfect games for your group oh good lord jason you're gonna spoil me <laughs> i know it's, i will do it I all right do that's it. a that's a done deal we're doing it in october so awesome. between now and in october i'm gonna bug you again please um, do no i love that stuff that's super exciting guys let's take another quick break we have back from this break i want to talk about uh two games specifically i want to talk about gray ranks and night witches really gray ranks because um as i started to explore that game it got more and more fascinating to me especially the theme i think everybody's going to enjoy this conversation we'll be right back If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. 
But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So, um, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the intro, um, obviously, you know, I knew who Jason was, um, and have loved fiasco for a long time. I really enjoy fiasco. Um, but you know, as soon as I, you know, keep hearing the same names as I'm interviewing uh, other designers and, you know, Jason Morningstar this, and I've read this from Jason Morningstar, I'm like, all right, I got to get Jason on the, on, on, on the show that then allows me Jason to dive in even deeper into stuff that you have done that I wasn't aware of. Right. Um, and two of the games that really piqued my interest that I wanted to talk about are gray ranks and night witches. What do you want to talk about first or what should we talk about first? Well, let's talk about gray ranks first and we'll okay. talk about them in, in sort of order of development. Perfect. So, t um, first of all, can you tell everybody the premise of gray ranks? Cause I think th this one, I had to read it a couple times. Yeah. So in gray ranks, you play, uh, Polish teenagers during the Warsaw uprising. Uh, so it's 1944, uh, and the citizens of Poland are going to generally up, rise up against the Nazi occupation. Uh, and if you know history, you know that this was, uh, this was a tragic event that did not end well. Uh, and it was uh, a situation where uh, many people had to make a lot of hard choices about their own survival and the survival of Poland as a nation. Uh, so it's a super, super intense, super sad story uh, in general. And then when you uh, combine that with the fact that there were essentially child soldiers uh, that were uh, fighting, uh, it becomes even more intense. And that's that's the premise of the game. So um, that sounds like fun. <laughs> I, but but to go back on that, Jason, like where does where are the beginnings of that? Like where did, where did it start? So a, a couple of things. So first of all, uh, when you say that sounds like fun, I agree. Um, there, are, <laughs> there are different kinds of fun, right? There's type one, type one fun, which is we're all having a good time and our sides hurt from laughing. And there's type two fun, which is uh, that was awesome and I never want to do it again. Interesting. Uh, and uh, a great ranks is more type two fun, but there's a lot of type one fun in it as well. Okay. Uh, we can sort of talk about that but but uh it is it's a sad and story about a tragedy like awful things happen uh when within the game uh the sort of arc of your character is going to be just uh epic in the most literal sense they will change over the course of of 
play in ways that you can't imagine. So, uh, you know, either that grabs you or it doesn't. Uh, and right. you really, you really have to, as a group, uh, have a conversation about that and just commit. And if you can commit to taking it seriously and trying it, uh, then you'll have a really rewarding experience. And if anybody's not feeling it, then absolutely it's not the game for you. And that's fine. That's totally fine. Uh, but it's not as grim and intense as it, it uh, as the pitch might make it. And you have sure. a lot of uh, narrative control. Uh, you have a lot of agency within the game. Your character, in fact, cannot die in Night Witch or in uh, Grey Ranks without your consent. So, Interesting. You know, it's just uh, there. There are some guardrails there to keep it from getting uh, too too uh, too intense. Uh, and I assume that had to be the case because I obviously like safety tools of some sort was the first thing I thought of when I read that. Yeah, it's super interesting because uh, you know it's a it's an early game and yeah. the, there are there are tools that are built into the game, but they're not safety tools. There's no X card in in gray ranks because it didn't exist at the time. Yeah. If I were to write it today, it would be written very differently. And uh, many things that are sort of uh, implicit in the design would be explicit. Right, sure. right. So if I break into your house tonight and I find the notebook where the beginnings of this games were, what would I see jotted down? So where were the origins? Yeah, this is such a dumb story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always embarrassed when I uh, when I tell this, but the, the so I, I knew the story of the rising. Uh, it's just it's part of my collective knowledge of history. I knew about it in the, the broadest sense. And uh, there was a, a local game convention called Mace, and that one year, I think 2008 at Mace, they had a game design competition, a game chef competition. And the two and the ingredients uh, that they wanted you to make a game about were ruined city and romance. And the very first draft of Grey Ranks came out of me hearing ruined city, romance, and having, having it immediately flashed to Warsaw and the Warsaw Uprising. Uh, I did a little bit of research and then found out about these teenagers that were fighting uh, and it sort of it all kind of came together. One of and I won the competition. Uh, I got a medal. It's pretty great. <laughs> so in the in the arc of that design, then Jason. So there's the origins of it there. Um, I'm always fascinated to know when it stops going uphill, when it, when it, things start clicking, when the game started to come together, or when you feel like it matured in your mind. Do, do you remember? Like, was there something that you did or a change you made where it all kind of came together? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And this was a, it's a pretty complicated game in some ways. Um, okay. It's not complicated procedurally, but it, it, it's, there's a lot of moving pieces. You're, you're sort of navigating the mental space of your character uh, as they go through this traumatic event. Uh, and it's played across nine uh, scenes, basically. And each scene is a specific time and date within the Warsaw Uprising. Um, and uh, your character is represented on a little grid that that moves around, and the corners of that grid are uh, um, very uh, dark places. Um, so, like one of the corners of the grid is um, martyrdom, where you 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 know you're gonna uh, be for sort of propelled towards self sacrifice, and another one is kind of the opposite of that. It's 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 self destruction. So making that work uh, was extremely difficult and making that uh, uh, playable and representative in the way that I wanted it to be uh, was took a lot of, a lot of work. 
and uh, uh, there was a lot of back and forth discussion about it uh, with uh, sort of uh, my peers and uh, my friend Bill White is the guy who sort of cracked the case on gray ranks. He he uh, he, he showed me how to make the grid work, which is oh great. that's cool. That's and that's cool. what uh, that that was the at that point I knew the game was functional and it was more uh, a question of assembling the materials that, that it needed. Well, a game like that that wins a, a prestigious award um, and obviously has an impact, um, was there anything that surprised you when it got out in the wild? Um, I'm always fascinated to hear, you know, you you develop a game, you have your circle that you develop it with, but then it then it's out. It's not not around you anymore. You don't get to show anybody how to play Gray Ranks. Right. Um, was there anything that came back from that that, that fascinated you? Yeah, absolutely. Um so, so you're right. As a game designer, once you release it, it's out in the wild and you don't get to come in the box and explain how things work. So, uh, and that's a, that's a really important thing to remember because you want people to be able to engage with it in the way that you want them to. And uh, a game like Fiasco, for example, the game still kind of trundles along even if you miss some of the rules. The game will still yeah. work. Uh, but Great Ranks was not going to be that kind of game. So, so I had to make sure that it was very clear what you were supposed to do and when. And I spent a lot of time making sure of that. And I think it was successful. The thing that surprised me, because I hadn't written a, a, a game that was sort of making emotional demands on the players that wasn't super intense. Uh, at, this, at this point, it, I had made funny games up until this point, pretty mm -hmm. much dark, dark comedy, uh, was that uh, people would want to change that. They would want to, um, uh, they would want to sort of defuse the emotional intensity that's built into the, the the concept, and the way that you do that is by hacking it to play Star Wars, okay, uh, or hacking it to play Terminator or whatever the like the overlying themes of the game are. So the themes are dystopia, uh, surreal destruction. Uh, I I don't even know, but. Uh, if, if you can map that onto a science fiction property that is completely safe uh, and then you can engage with it in a way that is that doesn't require any emotional engagement at all. And that's something that I saw happen uh, and continues to happen. And there's nothing I can yeah. do about it. But I'm always it always makes me a little sad because uh, you're avoiding one of the things that I really wanted you to experience, which is empathy uh, and respect for the people who uh, had to go through that. Uh, for whom it is ground truth and it's within living memory. Those people are yeah. still around. That was 77 years ago, uh, 77 years ago yesterday, in fact. Uh, Unbelievable. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it means a lot to me. And I was uh, initially very dismayed when, when people chose to do that. I've kind of, I've kind of given up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you don't have much choice. I would yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. It, uh, beat your head up against the wall. So let's talk about night witches. Okay. Do you want me to give you the pitch for night? Witches? I would love it if you don't mind. All right. So uh, again, this is another world war two game uh, in, in night, Witches, you play members of the 588th night bomber regiment, which is a unit in the, the Soviet red army. Uh, you're fighting in a war uh, of existence against the Nazis on the Eastern Front. Um, uh, the game takes place over the course of the entire war. You start in 1941 and you end with the liberation of Berlin, uh, if you're lucky. Uh, and the thing that's interesting about this game is that uh, the 588th was composed entirely of women. 
all the officers, all the uh, pilots, navigators, mechanics, everybody in the 588 was a woman. And so the game takes place uh, at the intersection of total war and endemic sexism, because the Red Army didn't want them there, didn't want them flying, and did everything they could to derail their missions. So they were flying with the oldest, most outdated equipment, with the worst supplies, and were given the most dangerous jobs. That's that's the pitch. Uh, yeah, that's what, that's what you're doing. Uh, so it like. Is yeah. Is the World War II thing a coincidence, Jason, between the two? Or is this something that, that it, it, is it a setting that you're finding fits for what you're trying to accomplish? I think it's a little of both. I, I didn't okay. intend to to write a bunch of World War II games, but it's a, it's a very easy place to find counter narratives, right? So there, there are... Uh, there are sort of established truths about what the Second World War was like that are not at all true. Uh, and I think it's interesting to explore those and to provide an opportunity for people to to look at that material in a new way. So Night Witches, did, did you know the 588 and then the game came or did the game start and you found the 588? Yeah, no, I, I read about them. And immediately went home super excited to write a game. And in fact, I did. I wrote a, I wrote a game right away. And I knew like, oh, this is cool. They were called the Night Witches. That's the best title ever. Great name. Um, this is an amazing story. And I wrote a game and it was terrible. It just was no good. Uh, we played it and it was unsatisfying and stupid and broken. And, and I put it in a drawer for five years. Uh, I didn't look at it again because I, I knew that I just didn't have the tools that I needed to make it. I didn't look at it again until I played Vincent Baker's game, Apocalypse World. And the minute I played Apocalypse World, a light went off and I opened the drawer again because uh, that was the the technology that I was missing. <laughs> so when you say it, so it, there's, it, it, there's a beginning and an end, right? And if you make it all the way to the end, um, you get to the liberation of Berlin. Um, what this is this is, and if this is oversimplification just tell me craig it's a dumb question um what are the decisions that i'm making as a player or as a group as i go from 41 to the liberation can i get a feel for that yeah so uh, the game you play on duty stations and each duty station is a is sort of a pinpoint in the map in the actual progression of this regiment so in late 1942 you're uh Fighting, you're fighting out of an airbase at Parisip over um, uh, the Black Sea, right? For the the Battle uh, of the Crimea, basically. Uh, and within that, there are a series of missions that you have to accomplish before time telescopes forward. Uh, and each of those missions has its own parameters and they're complicated and dangerous in different ways. Um, so uh, what happens, a duty station is owned by a particular player whose character recedes into the background. So if I'm facilitating uh, Parasip duty station three, I think it is, uh, I'm in charge of uh, making all those missions happen every night. That's what happens at the night. And then during the day, I'm responsible for making your lives interesting. And the Apocalypse World Engine does a really good job of systematizing the job of the Game Master, letting you know sort of the things that you are allowed to do and the things that you should do, how you ask and answer questions. Uh, and then it's all adapted, of course, for Night Witches so that it's pretty clear what's happening. And, and the, the fiction sort of builds on itself. 
because it's set up uh, to be fundamentally impossible for you to succeed. Hmm. So uh, in order to succeed at night, you need to be uh, very effective during the day at securing the supplies you need uh, and avoiding uh, various kinds of political trouble that you might get into. Uh, and also just like keeping your heads down when th there are heads to be lopped off. Uh, and all of that stuff takes energy and uh, resources that you desperately need uh, during the night. So your characters are constantly exhausted. They're never working at full capacity or they're fresh as daisies, but they don't have the, the repairs that they need. So like there's always a balance and that's like where the role playing comes in because you have to make these choices and they're constantly getting more and more difficult. Uh, and, and it escalates over the course of the war as you develop bonds with these women. So uh, it's a brutal game. Characters die all the time. And in some cases, you're making decisions about who that's going to be. So, so what happens, and this is the thing I, I, I really love about the game because it echoes anyone's experience in war. And I, I don't have any experience in war, but you hear this from veterans all the time, uh, in, particularly in extended conflicts like the Second World War or Vietnam, that the longer the conflict goes on, the less the less excited you are about being the last one to die, Ugh. right? So when you get to the last couple of duty stations, it becomes a game of real delicate balance, walking on eggshells, trying to avoid being that last one to, to, to fall. Um, and that becomes a whole, a whole different experience. Yeah. Uh, there's no more bravado. There is no more love for the new girl in the unit because huh. she is the one who's going to cause a problem. She's the one who's going to get you killed. And it's it's fascinating to see because it just echoes uh, those sort of military narratives from time immemorial. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And so it sounds to me, if I'm understanding this correct, Jason, so the, the, the job of the, the, I forget Vincent's term for it. Um, it wasn't GM. It was something the else. MC. The MC. MC. Thank you. It sounds like the job of the MC rotates by station. And, mm -hmm. and each, again, we're seeing that spreading of that responsibility going around the table. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh, very cool. Very, um, and, very cool. And in, the, the thing is, uh, each of these games does it in a way that's in service of the game. So right. when, I, when I give talks about game design, I always say, listen to what the game wants. The game will tell you what it needs about how you apportion authority, uh, how you divide credibility at the table. Uh, and it may be that there needs to be a traditional game master and players, but Maybe not. And mm -hmm. uh, the game will tell you that. So in each of these cases, you can see I arrived at a, a different conclusion based on what the game the game needed. Can you think of a time where a game just shouted that in your ear? I'd be curious to know, and it could be recent or not, where you maybe you were taking the game one direction and the game is like, no, no, this this is this is wrong. And it took you it took you onto the right path. That's a great question. And I'm thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, because I've heard that I've heard that said before, right, Jason? That you have to listen to the game and let the game take it. But I'd be very—I don't know what that feels like, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Durance is a great example of that. Durance is awesome. Uh, so uh, Durance is another game that I wrote that's about—it's about the carceral state. It's about being imprisoned. It's about penal colonies. Uh, and the original version of Durance made the. Uh, the forces of imprisonment, the authority, sort of faceless, right? They were they were 
non-player characters. Uh, it, I think at that point it was still a, a GM-less game, but it was but it was GM-less within the context of this is a, a story about prisoners. It's not a story about guards. And uh, the epiphany I had in Durance is that they're all prisoners. Interesting. And that um, they're prisoners in different ways, but they're none of them are going home tomorrow. Uh, and at that point, it became really clear that what you needed as a player was a mirror to your to your own character's experience, which means that you got to play someone in authority and also a convict. Uh, and once once that sort of happened, <laughs> the game wrote itself. It just all made sense after that. It really That's did. fascinating, yeah. man. That is absolutely fascinating. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about a little game called Fiasco, which is probably where you most likely know Jason from. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two motorcycles, one stick of dynamite. And gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So we've we've covered a lot, Jason, and, you know, we've jumped around from games to games. Where does Fiasco fit in, in this timeline of ours? Yeah, it's sort of after Grey Ranks, uh, before Night Witches. Okay. And the beginnings of the beginnings of that, because, um, well, I'll, I'll let you tell it. So it, where did the essence of it come from? Again, if I break into your house, find the notebook. Yeah, you won't find that notebook. Uh, but uh, so Fiasco <laughs> emerged from uh, a, a pretty rigid process that I uh, put on myself. Uh, I okay. said... I've identified a problem, and that problem is that I'm often at um, conventions or gatherings with friends when I have two or three hours of dead time. I want a game that I can throw down on the table, that we can play in two or three hours, tell a complete story, have a good time with anybody that's perfectly accessible and that creates a very satisfying narrative arc that wraps itself up. Uh, So that's where I started. And as I developed Fiasco, any idea that I had that didn't meet that, I threw out. So rather than bending the game to what it wanted to be, I I, I did the opposite, you know, uh, which was in this case very effective. It worked great. So like I had a version that had three acts instead of two acts, which is great because that mirrors film, right? Films typically have three acts. Took too long to play. The third act is boring. It got thrown out. There is no, the third act is now the aftermath in fiasco. Oh, okay. All right. Now, um, the version I have and the version I have played is, is the box set with that is completely card driven. Um, but it's my understanding that that's not the only version that's existed, that, that there was a book version first. Um, what's different from that, uh, from what I know fiasco to be versus if someone has just the book version. Sure. Well, you're, you're playing the same game, but, okay. uh, the, the boxed version of the game 
is uh, there's 10 years of lessons learned in, in that box. <laughs> so uh, the original version of Fiasco really came out of the sort of small press tradition of uh, the Forge and indie games at the time, which really was, there was sort of a doctrinaire answer to how you make a game, which is you put it in a perfect bound six by nine book. Uh, and then you use index cards and Sharpies and, and dice, but like the, the game itself is a little book. Uh, and that's what we did with Fiasco uh, originally. And that version is still in print uh, because it, people like it and uh, it continues to sell. Uh, some people prefer it to the boxed version and that's fine. It, it's functional and in some ways offers a little more depth in, in play. And there's a ton of play sets available for it. So it's not a bad, it's not a bad bet. Right. Uh, but when we, when we decided that we wanted to revise it, um, we really took stock on what we had learned playing it. I think I've, I know that I've played it more than anyone else on the planet. <laughs> That's probably a good bet. <laughs> and uh, I've learned a lot. And uh, all of those things that I learned have gone into the version that you have, Craig, which is in a box. It uses cards instead of dice as randomizers. Um, things are a little bit more streamlined, plays a little faster, um, and uh, provides what I think is a more cogent uh, experience. And I can give you specific examples of things, things that are tuned up, but that's basically it. Well, I would love to hear that though. Let's let, what's one example, like you consider that to be, it might seem small, but it's actually a big difference. Sure. Oh, there are so many. Um, one thing is that when, um, this is my favorite, uh, since we're using playing cards to, to generate situations, uh, what that means is that we have all the affordances of cards instead of lists of things that we're mm. writing down on index cards. Uh, so with playing cards, if I like the Poppleton Mall playset, but I want to play with my kids and I don't want any of the Satanism stuff in there, I can tune it. I can edit that out. Right. Uh, if, if I love Poppleton Mall and I also love business casual, I can mix those decks together. And then we have <laughs> a business office in the, the back of the mall. And those things work. Uh, they interoperate seamlessly. Yeah. Uh, and that opens up all these new uh, iterations and ways to explore and play that I just uh, I'm really excited about uh, and that I particularly enjoy. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's a really easy example. So when I when I had Steve Jackson on, um, God bless the guy, we had a, a segment in the, uh, about GURPS and. He was it's true Steve Jackson way. He was very honest with me. He said, Craig, I don't really want to talk about GURPS. And uh, it wasn't that blunt, but it was close. And, and you know what? It made me think and pause for a second because I was like, you know, I, I can imagine that being the case. Where do you still get excited by about Fiasco? Do you still love Fiasco or do you like, you know, are there other things that that are, are your passion now? And Fiasco is awesome. We're not, you know, downplaying that, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out where it fits for you. Yeah, no, that is not true. I, I'm not sure if I can swear on your show. You can. <laughs> I fucking love Fiasco. That's great. I, I will play it anytime with anyone. That no my, kidding. My ardor for the game is not diminished. Um, I think because it's a, it's really a, a showcase for the participants, uh, and so I, I really enjoy people. I enjoy seeing creative genius in all its forms, and a group of people that are really engaged in that game are going to support each other and uh, create something really fun together, no matter what. You have to work really hard to have a bad time playing Fiasco. I've seen it. I know it can be done. 
It's possible. <laughs> it is. I, I had a guy, I had another game designer actually, who said, your game is broken and I'm going to prove it to you. And, and I was like, cool, sounds good. And uh, we played a game of Fiasco where he very deliberately chose to uh, have successful outcomes for his character constantly. Uh, which, you know, great. You have a boring game of Fiasco, buddy. We're going to route around you to find the fun and your character will be completely successful and have a happy uh, ever after. And you have had a very boring two hours while we congratulations tore the room down all around you. And so like, you know, that, that that's possible. But most of the time, p- people are there for the right reason and it's really fun. So yes, there are other games of mine that I think I would, I would not really want to revisit. I don't think I want to play the existing version of the Shabal Theory Roach anymore. And the reason for that is not because it's not a fun game, because it is, uh, but it's kind of badly written. It takes too long <laughs> to play. Uh, it, to play the game as written would take about six hours. And there's, cool. about, there's about two hours of fun in that game. So, <laughs> so that's not happening. And also it is, a, I, I found that it is a, uh, it's a, a vehicle for punching down, which I don't Interesting. Like. How so? Uh, that, that um, it, uh, it sets up a situation where you have alibi to be as shitty as you want. So your character is controlled by an evil insect that doesn't understand how things work. So maybe that's an excuse for me to be sexist at the table. Uh, and I just, I, it's, that's not cool. And I don't like it. Oh, that's, that's, that's very, very interesting. So what's in the hopper right now, Jason, or what's come out recently that has got you super excited? Well, um, this last year has been difficult, uh, I think for everybody. And I haven't played as much as I usually do. Uh, and I'm kind of at wit's end. If you ask me what in the, what, what out there is new and hot, because I just don't, I don't get to play as much as I used to. Uh, and a lot of my design is informed by inspiration from from other other things. I would look to people like Gian Shim, who's uh, making super interesting games that are designed for solitaire play, that are designed, she calls them keepsake games, games that are creating artifacts of play uh, sort of in their wake, which I think is really smart. Um, so that uh, she's inspirational to me and I have a lot of respect for the work that she's doing. Um, but yeah, it's like I, I I feel a little disconnected right now, and so that's sure. not not a great question. So there's more people playing these games now than has ever been the case, and I I would imagine it's by by multipliers. Um, and I'm always curious to know from your seat whether you have a sense of why that's the case. Why do you think? you know, in the last five, six, seven years, and especially in the last two or three years, why do you think that that's the case? Why are more people playing this hobby? I think there's a, a number of reasons, some of which I, I don't understand, obviously, but like <laughs> d and is having a cultural moment, right? There's no question about that, that, that that's bringing people into the, the field. And if, if weird little games get one out of every thousand D&D players to take a look at them, then they're doing pretty good. So that's a thing. Uh, I also think that uh, communities of practice uh, bring in people uh, like them. So like mm-hmm. we, we've, we see this huge wave of like young queer designers or young marginalized designers that just did not have a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, and now they do. And uh, I think that's empowering for those communities. And I think it's healthy for the hobby, uh, healthy for <laughs> the industry. Uh, yep. And just all around, it's a it's a great thing to see, but it's not 
I don't think it's because of work that I'm doing, although I do my best to be thoughtful and inclusive about my work. I think that they're doing it for themselves and maximum respect. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that's concerning to you about that, about the explosion or about the current state of the hobby? It's interesting. I uh, I don't know that I have any concerns. I think it's going to be what it's going to be. I, I lament some things that seem to be lost. Uh, there, I came up in a pretty rigorous, maybe even cruel culture of playtesting, where the <laughs> where the expectation was that um, your game was really ready when you published it, that, that it has been extensively vetted, uh, and that it was uh, absolutely rock solid. And that's a that's a barrier to entry. That's a that's a gatekeeping function, and I recognize that. But at the same time, I'm also a consumer, and I I want to buy games I can play. So so that's a thing that I I look at, and I, I have to recalibrate a little bit because there are people that I respect who are making games that don't really get much playtesting, or, or games that are iterative, where they're they're releasing them and saying, yeah, well, this will change over time as I get feedback from people engaging with it. It's not a bad model, but it's a model that just uh, it, it's, uh, it's there's some cognitive dissonance for me. And that's, I'm sure that's just because I'm old and grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> we, it's funny you say that because to a certain degree, like I've, I, I'm trying to be good about that by when my first reaction is like, whoa, no, no, no. Uh, going, oh, wait, are you just being an old guy and this is not for you? Or, you know, yeah, is there yeah. a real concern here? No, yeah. Question your assumptions because there's yeah. like they're like lyric games are, you know, a whole thing that's developed and is constantly developing. And in some cases, they're not really meant to be played. You know, they're they're a, a work of art that stands on its own and you, you respect that or you don't. But it's not uh, ascribing the same values uh, that I, I still like to put in my work. So like that's cool. It's just a different way of looking at things. And uh, we need to adapt. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm trying my hardest. I, I, I do better than others, but not as good as I hope to do. So, um, wow, Jason, this was fantastic, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you asked such good questions, Craig. This was great. I really uh, I enjoyed it very much. Well, that's very kind of you. So, Jason, if uh, people want more Mr. Morningstar, where do they go? Well, my company is Bully Pulpit Games. So come visit me at bullypulpitgames.com. And that's probably the best place to uh, find out about what we're up to. We have a Patreon so track me down on Patreon. I'm releasing a new game, a play-tested new game every month. <laughs> these are, that one, uh, that's really funny. These are, you know, small games. And uh, in some cases, they're design experiments, but they're really fun and cool. So um, Beautiful. check me out on we'll, Patreon too. We'll link to both of those on the, uh, uh, on the show notes. So you, everybody listening right now, you can scroll right down. You can get links to both of those things. Check it out. And for crying out loud, if you've not played Fiasco, you need to fix that because um, there's a lot of people you know that don't think they would play games that will sit down and enjoy a game of Fiasco with you. And uh, I am going to share my curated list from Jason when I get it for Camping yeah, for you Gamers. Are. You got me super excited for that. But most importantly, you sat through this whole interview and listened to the whole thing. So I want you to know I appreciate you too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. That was perfect, Jason. Thank you. Oh, good. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. I get uh, um, I get fired up. So let me know if I'm uh, if I'm talking if I'm saying too much about things that are not relevant or whatever. So th- that's my job, Jason, is okay. to make sure that you sound interesting. All okay, right. Good. So if at any point you don't sound interesting, that's my job to bring us back in. So okay. don't edit yourself. And right. if we take a hard right turn and it's interesting, we're going to go there. Um, some of my best conversations have been completely, you know, off script and we just kind of go down something or somebody says something offhandedly. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. So no, please don't edit yourself. Just okay. let me I'll worry about that. Don't you? OK. Yep. Sounds good. Awesome. Oh, see, perfect example of what I'm talking about, Jason. Oh, that's like, right. We we really do enough on a rabbit trail there, which is which is awesome. And you know what um, made me think of it is um, uh, Lynn Hardy. Um, I had her on the show. She writes for Chaosium, and she talked about several times brought up your LARP designs as part of what influenced her. What really? Yeah, and I was just okay. like, you know, I, I was like, I don't think I knew that Jason did that, but you know, it's because I'm an idiot and it just didn't, wasn't it didn't have the awareness you know and uh so that's why i was tentative when i asked you it's like oh, no, I, you know I'm, I'm super glad you did and there is a, like a community divide too like the in many yeah. cases the people that i'm nerding out about lark with are different from the people I'm sure about the by sure. the way i'm sincere about that offer i will help you find a cool game oh i'm gonna take you up on it you, that was a huge Wait. mistake because i have it on tape now <laughs> i do I, i'm definitely gonna do that though, good, jason good. that that's fascinating all right i'll bring us back Oh, God, Jason, you have you've helped me so much in understanding a lot of these conversations I've had. Your examples are fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. How are you on time? We're at uh, right about an hour. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm kind of losing my voice a little bit. So I may I I may be pausing. Yeah. Hey, the beauty beauty of editing. You'll you'll be just succinct the whole time. (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) All right. I'll bring us back. Uh, oh hey are you still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care.